First and Second Chronicles. It's going to take them together, <coughs> even though they're, they're two books that are fairly long, long in chapters. Um, we'll just call the study Plan A is still Plan A. <laughs> plan A, God's Plan A is still Plan A. Uh, the in Hebrews uh, Chronicles basically means events of the days. A reference to, well, what days do you suppose that's a reference to? Well, the days before the exile. Okay? And the put together and written very likely second or third generation after the return from exile. So return from exile has happened and now we're two or three generations into that. And um, it's still pretty glum for God's people. Uh, God brought the captivity to an end and his judgment to an end. But uh, this ain't what it's supposed to be where they're at now. We say that to ourselves a lot too, I'm sure, you know. Um, these two books, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, uh, fairly popularly skipped over <laughs> by many. Who here is any? Has has anyone here? Oh, let me say, how many have read First and Second Chronicles? Studied it to any degree? Okay. What's usually sort of your experience when you get the Chronicles? What, what, what's what's what do, you, what do you run into Chronicles that you... Yes, Dave? Well, probably the first part of it I struggle with the most um, because, you know, you have the genealogies oh, yeah. which sometimes on the surface don't lend themselves to, say, light application. Right. And uh, but the problem is when I have skipped over them, I feel guilty to go back and begin and start over. <laughs> Good old guilt. <laughs> Good old Christian guilt. <laughs> thing that weighs us down and drags us right back through the sewer every day. Um, there's better reasons to do it than not guilt. Hopefully this will help some as well. So Guilt is a very poor motivator, unfortunately. but um, Or even if it motivates us to do certain things, it's just, we, we get a sense sometimes, I'm not saying this is the case to you, but sometimes when we do things out of guilt, we get a sense of, okay, well, I, I did what I'm supposed to do now, so God likes me again. You know what I mean? And that's the worst place a Christian can be. Um, Chronicles uh, in the Hebrew canon comes at the very end. This is after everything. After Malachi. First and second Chronicles in the Hebrew, the original coming together of the old canon, Testament canon, was not where we have it now uh, just before Ezra and Nehemiah. In a sense, there's a chronology there that makes sense to have Ezra and Nehemiah after first and second Chronicles because second Chronicles ends with uh, pronouncement of the exile coming to an end and Ezra and Nehemiah pick up there. But it comes at the very end. It's part of the writings. Okay, so you, you, you may recall in Hebrew you have you have the Torah, you have the prophets, and you have the writings. Okay? And the writings include Psalms, Job, Ruth, Song of Songs, which you'll hear a little bit about today, or Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Lamentations, Esther, and Daniel. Interesting to note that in the Hebrew canon, Daniel is not considered one of the prophetic books. It falls under the category of the writings. Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles are all part of the writings. Whereas we saw before, Kings and Samuel are part of the former prophets. Okay, we, we typically refer to those as the history books, but they're actually what's called the former prophets. Now. 
Kings and Samuel are the source materials for the chronicler. Okay? For the one that wrote the chronicles, Kings and Samuel is the source of all his material. And these people, now again, we're, we're, we're generations, a couple of generations from the exile. Uh, Samuel and Kings have been written some time ago. People are familiar with the history of Israel. And, and again, this was one book, right? And not two. It was one long scroll, much as were first and second Samuel. Okay, it's just one long book. It ended up you know, when you put it into, you can't try to carry around all those scrolls. And so, who was? <clears throat> I will just call him the chronicler. Earlier scholarship assumed it was Ezra, because of the continuity of some of the themes in the language, but. Uh, that's not so much the case anymore. It's widely just unknown. Probably an unknown, anonymous author. Single author. In their Old Testament, uh, in coming from the Old Testament, authors Arnold and Bayer say the chronicler produced what may be called the first commentary of the scriptures. Because really it serves as some of the commentary on everything that's happened up to that point in Israel's history. I mentioned most of the material is from Samuel and Kings, though with many deletions, many deletions, and some additional materials. And why would that be? Well, there's, there's a different purpose and a different perspective for looking at that same history. Not unlike the Synoptic Gospels. Now, when I say the Synoptic Gospels, what do I mean? What are the Synoptic Gospels? Yes, right. Matthew, Mark, no, not John. This is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's because they share, they share, John is vastly different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all differ from each other in, in nuanced ways because they're written for different audiences. But John is vastly different than either Matthew, Mark, or Luke and likely doesn't share any of the same source materials as Matthew, Mark, and Luke without getting bogged down in where did they all get their material from. Okay? Imagine... Imagine two artists or photographs go up there on the dike at Quabbin Reservoir. You know that long bridge dike we've got just there. Has anyone here not been to the Quabbin Reservoir? Well, because it's you're Connecticut people, so I suppose that's why, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of beautiful spots on Earth, I'm sure, but, and, and that's, it's one of them. It absolutely is. I mean, it's one of the largest freshwater, sort of unfiltered water reservoirs in the country. And it's just magnificent up there. Imagine up there on that magnificent sort of thing where you get that wide look over the over the, the reservoir on one side and then all the surrounded by the mountains and nature on the other imagine asking two artists or photographers to go up on the dike of Quabbin and, and do their craft right so you, you'll get two different paintings right and you'll get two different perspectives so one person's particular interest is water right and how it plays on the sunlight streaming through the clouds and captures the reflection of certain trees and things like that. You get sort of the, the Bob Ross version of, of, of Coffin Reservoir, right? And now the other is sort of the other artist or photographer is more drawn to like the fauna and the inter interplay of the rocks and the green areas, right? So he's going to be painting that. So you're going to get different perspectives and different focus depending on what it is that they're trying to communicate and what they're trying to capture. They both show you their work, but at times you may wonder if they're even in the same place. And that's why in the Gospels, by the way, you get a variety of different things sometimes that on the surface might seem contradictory. Did Peter deny Jesus three times or did he deny him one time? 
Well, if he denied him three times, he certainly denied him one time, right? And this, I mean, the, the examples multiply as to what we find in scriptures doing that. And some big things are left out of the Chronicles. I mean, he completely leaves out Solomon's apostasy. Right? I mean, that's one of the shocking things about Solomon, right? Is he had such a good beginning. He had, uh, he had all this wealth. You know, God had given him all the things. He asked for wisdom that he could rule God's people. You know, and he, he just said, but as you know, you know, he got led away. And we studied this in Kings. He got led away by too many wives. And he went to Egypt to get the horses and get all that stuff they weren't supposed to do. That Hebrew kings, Israel kings, were not supposed to do. If they were going to be the exemplars, the leaders of the faith, you know, along with the, the Levites and the priesthood, and each had their play, right? Which is, again, is why Jesus is often referred to as prophet, priest, and king in his three offices, right? If you want to dig into a little proper theology, but... Um, so, in the book of Kings, it covers the consequence of sin and disobedience on the nation. That's the whole focus. Just had God had spoken in his covenant with David what he would do if the people were not faithful to the covenant. And God would not tolerate idolatry. He would not tolerate rebellion. So, so that subject of consequence didn't need to be covered again. They'd already been through the exile, right? They'd already been exiled. They'd already seen Judah sacked, burned, destroyed. All moved. Everything's gone. Everything's gone. It's just horrible. We, we can't imagine it. You know, we, we get understandably culturally frustrated at what goes on in our nation. But we cannot begin to imagine. I mean, can you imagine... You know, pick a beautiful city. Pick some of the more beautiful spots of Boston or some of the other cities you've been in. And then imagine all of a sudden they all look like the worst spots. The, the, like the homelessness you see in L.A. or you see in, in Seattle. All of a sudden that's what you see. Right? Yeah, Mark. I'm just thinking, you know, we, uh, we don't appreciate really what happened in uh, Dresden or Coventry in, in during World War II. Mm. Those places were utterly, utterly devastating. Yeah. And we can't that didn't happen in our country, so we have a hard time relating to that kind of destruction. Yeah, yeah, we do. Unless you know, if you were in military action, you you, you would see that. Almost even like when the tornado went through. Right. Yes. Yeah, good point. The tornadoes on, in Oklahoma on TV. Yep. You're like, oh, that really looks bad. Good point. Like, oh. That's surreal. That's that. Good point. That's a good example. That, that just total path of devastation. He completely leaves out David's sin with Bathsheba. It's not in the Chronicles. Completely leaves it out. His conspiracy to kill Uriah. All of the conflict in David's family. All that stuff the Chronicle leaves out. Right? Everything that, you know, you remember David's struggles as he fled from Absalom and what Absalom did with, uh, to his brother who had uh, raped his sister Tamar. All that stuff. But rather, for the Chronicle, the focus is on the glories and the triumphs of David. In the early days of Solomon, Solomon, when he flourished in the will of God, that's his focus. And there's, there's a reason for that focus. In fact, the chronicler focuses on two things repeatedly. It comes up throughout the entirety of the books. It's the Davidic dynasty, right? So David and the lineage through which the Messianic king would ultimately come. That's the focus. And then the temple and the worship. right? The temple and worship. Sort of the two go together. Those are the foci of this writer. And the rewards... And the benefits of the covenant relationship when those two are properly attended to. So when the kings and when people were properly focused on uh, uh, the kingship of David and what God did with him and the covenant and all the things that God 
all the glory, everything God accomplished through David and all the things God had to say about David. And then all the importance of the temple and the worship practices and the Levitical priesthood and all that stuff and the way that worship is done correctly and how the tabernacle is supposed to look and what the, uh, I'm sorry, the temple is supposed to look like and all the furnishings and all of that stuff. That's the real focus of the Chronicle Rings because he's focusing very much on the presence of God with the people of Israel so that they could understand that the covenant has not been forsaken. That's a consistent sort of theme. No, plan A is still plan A. Okay, and so when 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 they do attend to those things, when 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 the the temple is, when the king is doing the kinds of things that a godly king should do, families prosper. There is plenty. There's no widespread sickness and famine, and there's great military victories. And we've seen what happens. In fact, the chronicler also does add a few things about certain kings, devastating things that happen to them. But there's an awful lot that he focuses on that is pretty good. And because he wants to remind the people of their rich heritage of God's purpose, his activity in the past, which is assuring them of a future like messianic kingdom yet to come. All the great things. That, and, and people are wondering at this point. So he wanted to remind the people of the rich heritage and, and, and of the covenant with David. Uh, if we go to First Chronicles chapter 17 for a second... I just want to sort of remind you something that's very much front and center in, in, in the mind, I think, of, of the chronicler and what he's doing. Now, therefore, this is after David had said he would like to build a house for the Lord, right? And, and Nathan comes and says, you know, it won't be you, it'll be your son. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies, moreover I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled for walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And, and I think here's a key verse here. This is, this is the verse for these people now that are back from exile. They know these stories already. The former writers, the judge Samuel and all that, all the emphasis and the focus on rebellion and sin, and this is what happened, and this is why you were exiled. And this writer bring them right back into all that history so that he can remind them of certain things. I think this verse is central. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, who was Saul. Right. That's that's the whole that's the whole sort of um, the paradigm that's going on here is that whole sense of comparing what happened there and what's going to happen now. God is not going to remove his steadfast love from the family of David, from the lineage of David. He is going to... And so this is something that these people in the, in the present state want to hear. This is something that they need to be reminded of. Okay? This is something that he has to put in there. He's not, again, he's not going to put in there all this stuff about David. It's like, you know... It's good for us at times, always, to see what God has delivered us from. Right? But... We don't need a sort of constant reminder of all the particulars... 
right? We don't keep a textbook, a scrapbook at home of all the pictures of our sinful lives, right? I mean, I have certain things that are things that are mementos to the glory of God, right? I still have a picture of the Jeep I totaled back in, you know, 86. I'll show people this is what happens when you're stupid, right? And I have... But, but, you know, we don't... We can think at times, especially when we're struggling with something in the present, what God has already delivered us from in the past. And so that's in our mind. But what we're always remembering is, is, is centrally is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? His death, his burial, his resurrection, his intercession, all that stuff. So there's a focus here. And that obviously didn't happen yet, right? So David obviously wasn't the one. They know that at this point, right? Because this has been written after the fact. Right? So they know it's not David. They know it's not Solomon. They know it's not a lot of these kings that have done it. Well, why is this guy including this? Why is this guy writing this to us? Why is it being written now when we've been exiled and we're back in here? Well, it's time to go over the important points that we might have missed with all the ugliness of the sin and the rebellion and the idolatry and the exile and the suffering. It's time to revisit that. It's time to revisit your hope. It's time to revisit your promise. It's time to see what God still has for you. Okay? And we always need that. Always need that. So it's such an important focus for God's people at the time of the chronic. Chronicles writing again a couple of generations after exile the once great kingdom is no more all that was left was a, was a much less glorious temple right the temple that was rebuilt was a far less glorious temple than the original one you remember that uh, we, we went over that last week right there was rejoicing and there was weeping weeping over oh no this temple this isn't nearly as cool and others were like yeah we got a temple again you know yeah. and what a picture of the way that these people must have felt all the time and that tension between okay but this isn't it right I mean the temple before was greater and this is lesser does that mean what does that mean this is an anxious people all that was left was a little provincial government under Persian authority down there in Judah that's it but again the the chronicler's priority is to draw attention to the temple and worship or or the cult right The, the, the cultic practices not in the dark way but we can think of the word cult, I've mentioned this before, as we might consider the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Branch Davidians or, you know, any of those. But when we talk about the cult of a particular religion, we're talking about its religious life, its practice. Okay? So it's not just a negative word. I hate that we do that in English. Our English is, I've heard it read, I'm sure, I've said, and I'm sure of you that English is probably one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. Yes, Mark? My, uh, my daughter-in-law is trying to teach her kids English, and she said that the we were, you know, started last week, and we uh, she was saying how difficult it is. Oh yeah. Uh, trying to teach a five-year-old how to, you know, what some of the rules are. They, they certainly don't get into all of them, but you're oh. right. It's, and my wife used to say the same thing, and you know, they had a hard time teaching the English language. Yep. I've heard it mentioned that uh, English is actually three languages in a trench coat pretending to be one. <laughs> <laughs> who, who said that? Uh, I read it online. So. Three languages in a trench coat pretending to be one. <laughs> oh, so he, he's um, so drawing their attention again to the lineage of David and the things that they got right. And they're intended to be the impetus for the people to reorient themselves to the ancient promises of this future glory. Okay? So that's what the purpose is. That's why he's writing this. The way he's writing it. Leaving out what he leaves out. 
adding in what he adds in. Because the people, like, are, are, are we still the people of God? I mean, are we still the people of God? Uh, did, did God end his covenant with us when, when we were in exile? Is God still interested in us? These are questions that Longman and Dillard posit in their review of it. I think that those are fair questions. That, that Imagine that must have been on their minds. Is What does this mean? we got a lesser temple. It's a generation of, what, 40 years? So it's either 80 or 120 years after the exile that this is written. And the people have just got to be wondering, wow, we came back from exile. And they don't want to complain. I think... We saw some in Ezra, we'll see more in, in some in Nehemiah as well. That some people still didn't get it, you know. Um, so, the Chronicles speak to these questions and the content of the, of the text gives a resounding, of course you're still the people of God. You know? No, God did not end his covenant while you were in exile. And yes, God is infinitely still interested in you. How could he not be? How could he not be? Kim and I were looking up the origin of the apple of the eye. You know, Scripture uses that Israel is the apple of God's eye. And I forget exactly what it means. It's more than apple. It has to do with the small reflection that you see in someone's pupil. And so the image of God that he sees his own image in your... Like, if I were to look in your eyes... But you're a guy, so I won't do that. It just, <laughs> it just feels too awkward. But, you know, I won't look into your wife's eyes. I'm going to pretend Kim's here. <laughs> and I'm looking into her eyes deeply, and I see a little reflection of myself in there. Israel's the apple of God's eye. It's the, it's the focus of his attention. It's the, you know, we are now, right? Uh, we're, we're what God had in mind, what he had Israel in mind. So, and that blessing comes through faithful kingship. Blessing on the nation. Because remember, we're still dealing with theocracy. And we have to be careful. There are principles that carry over into our Christian life. But not everything. Because when you're talking about a, a theocracy with a king and, and his kingship, his, our nation, our relationship with God, whoever is present has no bearing on that whatsoever. Can't change a thing. If uh, Joe Biden persists in his path, there's lots of things that are bad for the country. All right. Um, Donald Trump had great ideas. And, and my own sense was he was such a disrespectful man that that brought its own consequences as well. So, but that's not going to affect your life and my life. It, it, it will affect like, it can affect uh, uh, like the tangential stuff. I don't, I don't mean that in some minimal way, right? Some of our particular rights or something can be compromised in our, mm-hmm. Right. But, but they can't change the fundamental essence of what it means to be united with Jesus Christ. Our president can't ruin our covenant, can't take our covenant to the toilet. They're not right? our representative exactly. before God. Exactly. So, they, 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 in Israel, faithful kingship, that was everything. You'll recall when we talked in First Kings that it was very important for the kings to know the law. They had to know it so they could live it, so they could model it. So they could lead by it. So they could present the vision to the people. It doesn't mean things can't get miserable, but we can't get bumped off our trajectory from here to the new heavens and the new earth. In the, in the, oh man, it's finally going to happen. It is ultimately actually going to happen. Not soon enough, in a sense, right? 
So let's look at some of the texts of these two chapters. So, as Dave had mentioned, the first nine chapters seem pretty boring because of genealogy, right? I mean, because you can't even pronounce a lot of the names. But, to the people hearing, these are critical. These were probably as important as much else in these books. Because they trace Israel's lineage and identity and continuity from Adam all the way to the exile and back. So they trace that entire... And why is that important? Well, because it offers sort of a who's who of what matters for land and military obligations and hereditary rights and who could potentially be king. All these things. It's critical. It links them to what was, what became, what is, and what's going to be. And there's only two books in the entire Bible that attempt to cover the story of the beginning to the day they were in. So there's this genealogy in Chronicles and one other book. Yes, Matthew. Yeah, Matthew's other one covers everything right up from the very beginning, right up to that day. And there's a reason for that. That need. Well, see, we don't. We get curious about our DNA, and you know, we might buy or somebody might gift us an Ancestry.com subscription or whatever, right? And you can find out. Oh, look, I've got some Germanic and Slavic in me, and I've got some whatever in me, right? It just doesn't matter that much. We just don't trace our lineage that way, right? It just isn't all that kind of critical. It's interesting, but it's not like determinative for our identity now, right? Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, an unfortunate byproduct of that is the way that so much of, of our history can be erased, right? Because it's not as meaningful to us as it was. And when I say us, I don't mean all of us. You know what I mean? To, to, to many as it was, like, it's who they were. You know what I mean? You, you, you could be a son of David, ten generations removed, a great, 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 great grandson, but you're still the son of David. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob, uh, took, took Joseph's two sons. He called them his sons. So very, very important. And you may recall that there was a book written on a little prayer that's hidden somewhere in there in First Chronicles chapter 4. Anybody remember that back in the early 2000s? Right after everyone got over the Y2K terror. What came after that? No, I don't mean it's terror, but... The prayer yeah, the prayer of Jabez, right? Yep. Remember the, anyone else remember that? Remember that little book? How big that was? It was like a big, big moon. It was like there was that, and then after that became Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life, which was another huge thing in a lot of like Christendom, right? So... Uh, and that's in First Chronicles 4, 9-10. Let's take a little peek here because it does deserve our attention. A uh, little thing that it is. Um, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez. Or, I don't know. I think it's Jabez. Saying, because I bore him in pain. Which, which is part of the curse, right? But then he goes on to say, Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he had asked. So the curse became a blessing. And that's, that's, what, that's like at the heart of this, this whole, what the chronicler is doing. The, the appeal to God, the desire for God, the dependency upon God, the, the coming to God to seek that blessing. It's, it's, it's uh, central to what's on his mind, I think. So I, I don't recall the theme or the significance of that little book when it came out. It, I seem to recall that people said, well, it kind of misrepresents the prayer. It's almost like a, 
name and claim it type of thing. But it, it may not have been. I, I don't recall. But I remember people talking about it. Um, but again, it does, it does fit in with the themes of Chronicles, which is God's blessing in response to seeking God, which is what's happening with them. They had experienced the curse, the exile, all that horrible stuff. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Right? They had experienced everything in exile. And, and now... So we, we will see great prayers of David and Solomon, but little prayers count too. This is, a, this is kind of a neat little prayer. Right? And it just sort of is right there in the middle of the genealogies. And I just, I, I think it's neat that it's sort of peppered in there because it, it along with the importance of all the other things I mentioned, the, um, the continuity, the identity of who those people are, you have the purpose as well. So not just the people at the purpose, the two of them are bound together. Pop over there to uh, chapter 10, 1 through 14. I'm just going to read verses 13 to 14. This is... This is the uh, demise of Saul, okay? And we just want to read God's sort of final word on Saul. Um, so you, you can read just like you did. Uh, in some of the stuff, there is some stuff, of course, right? Although there are deletions, there are a lot of stuff that's just verbatim taken out of Kings and Samuel. Because, again, he's just sort of reworking it, repurposing it for... Um, so you get the whole story about how Saul dies. And then in 13 and 14 of chapter 10, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Uh, one, one of the commentators refers to Saul as the archetype of exile. <laughs> See, an archetype is, is what? It's like the model on which everything else is sort of compared or is evaluated by. So Saul is that's what happens. That is sort of like exile from God for the disobedience, the rebellion, all the things that he was supposed to do that he didn't do, his faithlessness, his speaking his going after spiritists and mediums, his not um, seeking guidance from God because of his faithlessness. Okay? So I like that term. It's sort of the archetype of the exile. Right? And and reminder that exile happened because Israel did on a national scale what Saul did as king. I mean, Israel was all the people. There are all kinds of wickedness. Yeah, there were some that didn't. Now, you contrast that with the glory of what's going on when David is king and he's coming into Jerusalem. And I'm not covering all the material, of course, but over in chapter 13. And so you have chapter 13 through chapter 16. It's basically David and the ark coming to Jerusalem. And it's such a huge deal. Because... because the ark coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple. This is it. I mean, this is this is God home with His people. Right? This is God's presence established with His people again. Right? This is this is what was going to be so wonderful. It didn't last, of course, right? Because everything ended up getting destroyed in the end. But the the author here was reminding them: this is what happened. And this is what's there. This is what's available. This is still part of the covenant. This is the presence of God is still where it's at. And David has a great concern for God's presence among the people, which is the concern that he should have as the king. As the king. Right? His role as king was in some sense to, to mediate that. right? Or, or at least to do all God directed for his presence to be known. So everything God said, this is how I'll make myself known to my people. This is how I'll dwell among them. David, implement that. David, do that. Live the example and do it. 
And, and in those texts, he also gives special attention to the duties of Levitical priesthood. Which again, is very important to be reminding these people of. Because this priesthood is still something that's very much intact. You know, back from the exile. There's a reason why he's bringing this stuff up again 120 years later. Right? In a way, not equal, but, you know, if you think of a sort of a national identity that we have, which is not tied necessarily, again, it's not theocracy, but, you know, we consistently, we get a we got to dig out, Bill probably has one or two in his car, a copy of the Constitution, right? 200-something years after it's been written, right? So that we can get reminders of this is how we had initially planned on structuring and orienting our conduct towards God and towards one another. Acknowledging God and towards one another, right? So, you know, a little bit of similarity, but not, not nothing like, you know, the main point being that um, these people are now hearing Again, they've seen it in the genealogies. Go way back. They know what that Levitical priesthood means. That 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 has to do with intercession. That has to do with uh, dealing with sin. That has to do with atonement. That has to do with the presence of God. That has to do with being rid of sin. That has to do with loving God and loving one another. That has to do with purity. That has to do with all these things. That the temple is going to be the epitome of, so that God can come and dwell there. Right? And Yes, it failed, right? Because the exile happened and all that stuff, right? And, and they're back now. And so he's bringing it up again to show, yeah, you failed, but God didn't fail. This is still there. Remember, God was God did all this stuff. Uh, look at the joy of the presence of God. First Chronicles 15, 25 to 28. So David... And the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And, and because God helped the Levites, okay, so the Levites are carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers. And Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was shouting to the sound of horn, trumpets, and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres. The Ark being, again, this is, this is going to, the central, this is what's in the Holy of Holies, right? In the tent and in the tabernacle in the wilderness and it's going to be in the Ark. That's God's presence with them. It's supposed to, so the, the, the idea is to, again, provoke this sense of joy and awe from the people. Right? And to, to get that, that wonder going again. To hear about that fantastic, in the way that we all celebrate and remember certain things that motivate us and inspire us, in a sense, to push on or to be reminded of what the purpose is here, you know? And so, <clears throat> David, in his prayer after they come up into Jerusalem and they, the ark is placed, uh, David in his prayer extols the meaning of this event. So, David sort of, you know, just, what does it mean that the ark is coming into Jerusalem? Why is that significant? And David leads this thing in what's really a medley of hymns from the book of Psalms. And so, I won't read the whole thing, but in chapter 16, verses 8 through 36, we have this, again, medley of all kinds of psalms that have come together that are communicating in that song, in that worship, the significance of the ark coming to Jerusalem. Which is what? Which is what God intended Jerusalem. Remember, God had a plan for Jerusalem. Remember our, our little guideline right here when we're doing this study. God's rule, God's sovereign rule of his kingdom, right? 
man's response to God's rule and then God's response to man's response okay is that continues to be the guiding principle that we look at all of these Old Testament texts with so there's something about that there's something about Jerusalem there's something about Judah remember this is what God had chosen this is where he's going to put his name so this is meaningful this is big but there's a couple of things that he says uh, in verse 8 he starts with oh give thanks to the Lord call upon his name make known his deeds among the people so God has done something magnificent make it known make it known tell about it call upon his name and then in 23 to 27 sing to the Lord all the earth all the earth tell of his salvation from day to day declare his glory among the nations his marvelous works among all the peoples for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and he is to be held in awe above all gods for all the gods of the people are idols but the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him strength and joy are in his place Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and a light to the Gentiles they were supposed to be the ones that were so God did everything he was doing in Israel they were supposed to be the what is God like how does it relate to people and that was supposed to be lived out by Israel right that was the message they were supposed to be sort of a a living story of what does it mean to know Yahweh to love Yahweh to love one another and to bring that message to all people. So it wasn't just Israel, right? That's what the Pharisees and a lot of the Jewish leaders really got bogged down. That became the problem for all the New Testament time. All the early church area. That was a problem, problem, problem Paul had to confront. Others had to confront all the time, all the time, all the time. Oh, we're God's special people. Oh, we're God's special people. Right? Paul talks about it in Romans 11. He talks about it in Galatians. He brings it up in other places. Peter has to bring it up. You know, James, they all bring it up in some way. So this is, this is, this is momentous. This is worthy of singing. This is worthy of song. This is worthy of... God is doing what He said He would do. And He did it. And ultimately that... That wasn't the fulfillment because things still fell apart, right? But it's important for people to know, remember this. Remember this. Remember this thing that you forgot. Remember what you forgot? Remember what you forgot and what it cost you. That's all plan A. That's all plan A. God's plan was always to just be with His people. Man, why do we complicate it? What's God's big plan? He just wants to be with people He created and loves in ways we can't even fathom. And then chapter 17, uh, we have the covenant that God makes after David comes in there worshiping, leading the worship. Um, particularly verses 11 to 14. It says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers okay I will raise up now when your days are fulfilled I will raise up your offspring after you so, so David wasn't the fulfillment right so they can look in that and say be reminded there okay so yeah we got egg we had David and everything but we blew it all we were exiled and oh no we still God's people well wait a minute David wasn't the one he wasn't the one okay when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. Okay? And I was just, you know, this is the thing that I had read before. Right? He'll build a house for me. And again, I will not take my steadfast love from him. And, and then we see David's reply of humility in verse 16. He says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. It's a good place to be. Just sitting. Just sitting before the Lord. Who am I, O Lord? 
And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? There it is, man. That's the heart. Who am I that you brought me thus far? I keep thinking that, you know, we, we say this to ourselves. Like we, we, can, we can become forgetful, can't we? That we forget to ask, what is my life? What is my experience with the mind that you have brought me thus far? I told you a minute ago, I don't keep a scrapbook of my sins. I got them up here. I mean, the ones I can remember. The sins that Jesus died for multiplied so many times that I couldn't even let me mindful of. But, but what I would consider some of the big ones, right? And, and uh, the things that are just like, wow. How is it possible? <laughs> how is it possible we can be here on a Sunday morning and I can be standing at a pulpit talking about his word? That's absurd. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's insane. That makes no sense to me. That's, that's like boggles the mind. And have people to receive it. Right? <laughs> and have someone sit there and listen to me. And have someone get something from what I'm saying. Because yeah. it's not my words, I mean, obviously. But So, good question for the people to ask themselves back in the little tiny province of Judah with a less than temple. Right? Here's a good question for you to ask yourselves. I think the author might be indicating. Who are you that God has brought you thus far? Crazy. And uh, by bringing the covenant with God's covenant with David back up, mm-hmm. and when it's obvious that none of those kings that came after mm-hmm. were the fulfillment of it, mm-hmm. would be to the readers a reminder that there's still promises right. that God has for you that that's are exactly yet right. to come. That's the whole point. I mean, that's, that's that's part of the whole point of this. Just like David wasn't the one, and he was awesome. Those lesser ones that came after him, they certainly weren't it either. He made an argument from the greater to the lesser instead of the lesser to the greater. Right? But there's still something coming. There's still something wonderful. In verse uh, 27, uh, Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed. And it is blessed forever. It was just that, that wonderful acknowledgement. And then we have, just going to move it through here so I can get through it. David's farewell charge and prayer. So, over in chapter 28, verses 8 and 20, it says, you know, David is, um, uh, now therefore he's saying, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of God, and the hearing of our God, observe and seek all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Something that would still apply to them that day. And over in verse 20, he says to Solomon's son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Again, there's that focus on the temple. The temple has to be finished. God will be with you until that happens, all the way up until it's done. You have this great big task before you. Remain faithful. It's going to be built. right? And then over in 29.9, we see that the people give. And give and give, the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. But with a whole heart they offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. So, this is what happens when God makes his presence known among his people and they're, and they're, and they're enjoying him. And, and they're, yeah. Do you think that's why the, there's an emphasis on rebuilding the temple today? That could be, yeah. I mean, this, 
Right, so that's a good point too, you know, it isn't just this sort of, it's easy to sort of look at that, uh, you know, our brothers that we have a different opinion of us on that, right, and, and sort of, in some ways there's sometimes like a disparaging way of looking at that, well, what do you mean you want to, part of it is just, because, but they missed it, right, they missed the Jesus already, the presence of God is here, yeah. and was here, there's no need for another temple, Jesus is greater than the temple. Weren't they kept from seeing, I mean, uh, I just read it this week, that they were Oh, definitely. I mean, God hardened hearts and didn't allow them to see because he didn't. They didn't like what they saw that he already showed them. I was going to keep on showing them to um, the promise of God's presence. Just provokes this response from from God's people. And then the verses, just a couple of verses that David wraps up his life with, and it's a prayer. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Not me, David. Right? Down in verse 14, who am I? And what is my people that we should be thus, we should be able thus to offer willingly? How is it that we can willingly offer to you? How does that happen? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Verse 16. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. And verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What a great reminder to the people reading this again, right? O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. This is the new covenant in there. Right? This, this idea that, that God would forever purpose, would forever keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. We need God to keep that purpose and that heart alive in us. Which He does by His Spirit, right? That's what it means to be united to Him. Our ongoing hope is fruit of the Spirit in us. Our ongoing, our, our enduring is the work of the Spirit. Our, our staying in it is, is Him. So it's a great example of humble, grateful intercession. And then uh, in 29, uh, chapter verse 28, um, then he died at a good age, full of days, riches is on, in honor, and Solomon's son raised his place. So a good word there to, to, to end with. And then we get into some of the Second Chronicles text. So we've seen this wonderful thing of David. And so Solomon, Solomon was the builder of the temple, right? He used all of David's plans. David got the wood from Tyre. Remember, David made uh, friends with, I forget who it was, but... He got, uh, he got um, cedars from uh, Lebanon from his relationship with one of the, the kings up there. You know, it's interesting that the dimensions of the temple, when you think of the temple, don't you think of something like massive? You know, the temple was basically 90 by 30. You know, 40 feet high, but 90 feet long by 30 feet wide. That's not that huge. And in some ways, it's not as big as this. Some of the dimensions of this. You know what I mean? Interesting. Uh, in, in just going through a quick review of some of the chapters in chapter 5 the ark is brought to the temple right the ark is brought in there's praising there's singing there's worship the glory of the Lord filled the temple such that the priest could not even be there it's home it's there this is what everything was going to chapter 6 uh, we see the second dedication of the temple right and we see God's covenant repeated in, in uh, verses 41 to 42 it, after this happens after we see everything coming in there uh, 
Solomon praying, you know, just like we talked about in Kings, when they sin, if they turn and look towards the temple, etc. He says, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. Now, God's not going to take a nap. In, in, in Genesis, when it says God rests on the seventh day, he wasn't tired. It's sort of euphemistic for God just taking up residence in, in, his, in, in ancient thought in his cosmic temple. This is his temple. The garden was his earth. The universe is his cosmic temple. God is in the, in the place where he belongs. Mm-hmm. Seated in the midst of his people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfastness, your steadfast love for David, your servant. Referring back to David and the promise he made David. So that's another good example for, for the people. And then in chapter 7, fire consumes the offering. And God's interacting with his people, coming down like fire and consuming the sacrifice. What, a, what an intimate sort of look at, what a physical, raw look at the offering of sacrifice and the acceptance, that relationship, that intense relationship of sacrifice offered and accepted by God. It finds its you know, it's, it's quintessential reality in Jesus. Over in Second Chronicles 7.14, I just wanted to mention this because uh, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a promise for Israel in that day. Now I know, I don't want to offend, I know that in America, a lot of times like the National Day of Prayer, they incorporate this verse. Just, there's nothing about our. There's nothing that God will do about healing the land if Christian people, if God's people. It, it's assumed that God's people are already doing that. It's assumed that God's people are are, are doing that. Second Samuel seven fourteen is is not a prayer for us to pray for America's prosperity. Now there is a principle in play for God's people. Right? When our ongoing relationship with Him is based on the same kind of is based on covenant, like their relationship was based on covenant, we can anticipate ultimately great things. But it's unfortunate, I think, that we sometimes grab out of the Old Testament, toss it out there into a non-theocratic uh, country like ours or any other country could claim the same thing, and that's not what it's for. It's yeah. for a very specific time. Again, there is an enduring principle, but. Yeah, you have to take a verse like this, bring it back to the covenant that it's exactly. in before you can bring it out all right. up to us. Yep. So we see Solomon's uh, wealth and wisdom. Again, no mention of his failures. The people knew about those from kings, but the Chronicle wanted to emphasize the glory. Right? And then you read through some of the lineage. We can't get into too much. We have Rehoboam, who was another type of exile. Right? He messed up big time. He, it, I think I mentioned this before. Northern Israel is not mentioned in the Chronicles at all. Why? Because people are back in little tiny Judah. Northern Israel is no, it's no longer a part of the picture. It's no longer a part of the, that's, that's not part of the equation right now. The northern kingdoms and northern kings are never mentioned in Chronicles. Like the Iron Kings, where you constantly had a contrast. You had the kings of the north, the kings never mentioned in here. Um, over in chapter 13, Abijah, you know, you'll remember a little about him. A lot of negative reports and kings about him, but there's an emphasis on the concern for the temple that he had and the priests. So that gets mentioned here. Snuffed in there. Over in chapter 14 to 16, we have the reign of Asa. Asa did some wicked things, but he also had some reforms in response to the preaching of Azariah. And he ultimately failed to trust God in the end of his life. But he did make some changes. He did make some reforms in response to the preaching of Azariah. Jehoshaphat sent officials and priests all throughout the kingdom to teach the law to them. It was only after Jehoshaphat died that 
uh, Jehoram forsook the Lord. We see over there in chapter 21. But, very important point here, even though Jehoram, another one of the kings, he forsook God, look at verse 21, 7. Very important. Very important. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So even, even though Jehoram did stupidity in Judah and evil, all right, then you might remember Joash, who repaired the temple under the guidance of Jehoiada, the priest, uh, making again an important point about the importance of priesthood for these people to understand. And then in Hezekiah, Hezekiah gets a full four chapters. Now, Second Kings, the author devotes only one verse to the reforms that Hezekiah made. Whereas the Chronicler devotes four chapters to it. Because God honored those movements with peace and abundance as with other kings who were attentive to the temple and the worship. When your attention is where it needs to be, when your focus and your worship is. So, in those chapters we get a detailed account of the rededication of the temple, the celebration of the Passover, the revival of worship of God is followed by the stunning victory over Sennacherib, king of Assyria. How God blessed right covenant life. And then Manasseh is mentioned, and as you know, Manasseh was not a great dude. Uh, his repentance is highlighted. Um, Josiah's book of the law is found. Uh, different reforms are made. And so, ultimately we come to the final chapter, 36, where we find that, yes, as they know, of course, because they're back from exile, exile happened, right? Jerusalem was stacked and burned. But then you have the proclamation of Cyrus, which sort of started out in, in, in Ezra. Right? And it's rather an abrupt ending. Right? I mean, look at how it ends. The very ending is, 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 I mean, and remember now, this is the last book in the Hebrew canon. This is how the Hebrew canon ends. Not with Malachi. It ends with this. Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Mm-hmm. Let him go up. I like the way Tim Mackey, Mackey says, this is a story in search of an ending. Right, which is going to come, but but it is positive. It reminds them this is why you're back here, right? This is why you're here because of this edict. Despite what you just read about some of these other kings, you know that all that God was doing with His promise with the temple, it was a reminder that they were back in Jerusalem, in Judah, for God's plan. It was by God's gracious covenant love, and that's the importance to us as well. Whatever else is going on in our lives and families and government and culture, God's present promises, which are predicated on His plan A. <laughs> and all his activity and redemption history bring us again to the reminder that there is a final wrapping up of all things yet to happen. Our, our life, uh, unless Jesus comes back in the next you know, 30 years, we'll all have a different end and we're all going to be part of that great cloud of witnesses, but it may, we're, we're called in covenant. The Lord of God is with us. Let us go up. Um, and, you know, again, above all, the one greater the temple did come. God was faithful to all that he said. And God will continue to be faithful in, in, in his love, right? With his, he'll be that faithful, loving, that intense love that provokes a loving response from his people. Right? What, what provokes our, our love, we love, John says, because God first loved us. And so we have to, to the extent that we can get our head around the love of God, to the extent we can. I mean, Paul says that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Thanks, Paul, for that. He prays that we would know the love of Christ which you really can't know. I mean, it surpasses your knowledge, but I pray that you would know it somehow. We have to get that love. 
We will not love if we don't get that love. And, 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 and so it, it, God gets that response from us by the power of the love that he has for us. That, that, it just, it does that. And that's the, that's the message I think for this people as well. What God is doing is your hope. What God is accomplishing. Look at that. Look at what he's doing. Look what he's done. Look what he's accomplished. Look what he promised. Look what he fulfilled. And that will produce an effect. It has to. And that's why we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. All right. All done. Uh, I need someone to pray for us to end in prayer. Who wants to pray? Give us a shout out. Justin. All right, Justin. Thanks for volunteering. Dear Heavenly Lord, it is good to remember the blessings of your covenant, the joy of obedience, your faithfulness to people who do not deserve your presence, and the way that you make your name to dwell among us in our presence, that you have changed us from people who were once lost in the world to people who are found in you. Be with us, and may we go up as we head to the rest of this church service this Sunday morning and throughout our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Remember when you do get up to the church, we keep the doors to the sanctuary closed until 11.55 now to just create a better atmosphere for musicians inside and for people that are not coming to church, all the buzz and yakking and blah, 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 and then not ready to worship. So the doors will open at 5 of 11. And now, if, 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 if you can't sit down, there's not a place, by all means, come and sit quietly if you, if you, you know, physically need to do that. It was nice last week. We, we introduced that last week. It made a nice little difference. It really did. I mean, the service was fantastic. I don't think it's all attributed just to that, but it's not coincidental either.